Turn, please, to Romans chapter 3. We're moving pretty fast through the book of Romans. And the reason we're doing that right now is because um, the gospel, Romans is uh, a presentation of the gospel. But before you can hear the gospel, before you can hear the good news, you've got to hear the bad news. And a gospel presentation without the bad news is not a gospel presentation at all, in fact. It's defective. One that just says, come to Jesus, he'll solve all your problems. Um, a preacher that says that's a liar, that's the truth. Jesus doesn't come to solve all of our problems. Jesus comes to help us through difficulties and through problems. And so when we have trials, we mustn't think that the Lord has forsaken us or that we don't know him. No, it's just absolutely true that in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ says. Now, as we've been going through the bad news, and uh, today all are guilty, and none are justified by the law, is the sermon. And uh, I believe I'll take us all the way through verse 20, but uh, we'll wait and see how that goes, okay? Uh, the clock will, will be a tyrant to some extent that may stop us, but we'll see if we make it all the way through there and can still do a good job exegeting the scriptures. So last week we saw the religious moralist who thought that his law-keeping was good enough to please God. And he found out that he was condemned by the very law in which he trusted. And then in chapter 1, we saw the heathen who didn't have a knowledge of the written and codified law of God, but found that he was condemned too by the law written in his heart. Because all people are made in the image of God, all people have a rudimentary understanding of God's moral law regarding the commandments and their dealings with men, things like um, obeying parents, murder, sexual sins, lying, stealing. Society is not going to last very long that approves of those things. And so we saw that men and women can become so hardened in their sin that they sincerely believe that evil is good and good is evil. And um, I don't have to tell you that all you have to do is just listen to our society in so many ways. And uh, we've come to that point. I'm not going to glorify the past. You know, it's really become popular to, to condemn the past. And anybody that lived in the past that doesn't have the standards of today, well, they need to be canceled. They need to be done away with. Well, whatever it happens to be, erased from history. And of course, um, the past was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There were problems, there were difficulties. We can glorify the past and we would be wrong to do that, but to simply ignore the good things of the past is ridiculous too. And so we need to have a better standard and understanding than that. Because I can tell you, there are many, many things today that are seriously lacking according to the principles of God's word. Well, we saw an ugly picture of that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. So, uh, no go, won't go any farther than that. Just to say that society, when it starts thinking that evil is good, turning to reprobate society. Now, new material here as we come, and we're still in the subject, theology, the theology subject of 
anthropology. Anthropology, study men. If you go to college, you'll probably take a course in anthropology. And if you're a Christian, uh, unless you're going to a strong, good Christian college, you'll be challenged by your anthropology class. Uh, even if you're in a Christian college, you may be challenged by your anthropology class. It's uh, one of those areas uh, where um, evolution and uh, many other things are taught and, and strengthened. We're in a subset of theology called hermardiology, which is the study of sin. And that's what Paul's bringing us to. We'll be there again in chapter 5. But uh, that's what we're working our way through. This section can be a little confusing if you don't understand it. So I've tried to set it up on your outline in such a way that you can see that what Paul has done, he's continued his dialogue with a hypothetical Jew. And Paul knows what this hypothetical Jew thinks because he thought exactly like that before the Lord Jesus Christ saved him. So he brings up some objections and then he answers those objections. So don't think there's a real person that Paul is dialoguing with here or don't think that some of these things are are what Paul believes. He actually is contrasting and uh, the objection comes, he answers it. The objection comes, he answers it. So that's what we find in the first eight verses. Jewish questions, objections, answered. And let me just read the first eight verses for us. The question comes after all of chapter two, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? And we might expect with our new covenant eyes for Paul to say, there's no advantage. And circumcision is not even a good thing. That's not what he says, and we'll talk about why. What advantage then has this Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly, and here's the reason, because to them were committed the oracles of God. And then the, answer, the question comes, what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And Paul says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words, and you may overcome when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, there's another objection, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And Paul doesn't want us to get lost in this, so he says, I speak of the man. Okay, so he's kind of helping us here that so we don't think that this is what Paul believes, you know. Paul says, certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased, here's the next objection, and last. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? And then Paul says, as we are slanderously reported of saying, that's what some of the Jewish opponents are saying that we say, well, just do evil. You can get more grace. No, slanderously reported that we say that. And as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Okay. And then we'll get to the new section here. So last week we saw the charges Paul levied against his hypothetical Jewish opponent who does not believe that Jesus is the Christ. He dealt with the Gentiles. Then he dealt with the Jews. And now it's the Jewish objections that we're talking about. Paul argued very strongly in verses 28 and 29 of the previous chapter uh, that the outwardly circumcised are not the true Jew, 
but the one who has his heart changed or circumcised by God is. Look at those again, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And obviously, Paul's not saying the Jewish race no longer exists. Or that's, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about the fact that Jew and Gentile have been brought together by the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've also been separated from God by the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's talking about the matters of the heart and the matters of belief. Now, verse 20 and 29 would kind of make it sound like that um, Gentile and Jew are equal. And it is true, because they're both equally lost without Christ. And they're both equally in Christ when they believe. So the question is, from the unbelieving Jew, what advantage is it then to be part of God's chosen nation uh, with circumcision, uh, and, of course, uh, having received uh, all of those benefits, the Greek word for advantage uh, can be translated over and above or, or exceedingly abundantly or, or anything more like that. So just a, a, a lot of stuff. We've been God's chosen people. So you're telling me, Paul, that we have no advantage? And Paul said, no, you've got an advantage. You've got the word of God. The word of God has been given to you. The word of God has been given to your ancestors. The word of God is powerful. You, nations have been left in heathen darkness. They don't know anything except idols and false gods. And you know the true one and only living God. What's the value of circumcision then? You know, And he's thinking of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise to Abraham's seed would be blessed, that they would be the favored nation, and circumcision by the time of Paul. You know, it's interesting, throughout the Old Testament, circumcision was often ignored. There were times that the, the people were not circumcised at all in the Old Testament. But by the time we come to the first century, circumcision was the thing. That was the big one. That's what you had to do. In fact, uh, it was so bad, as you might recall, that by the time we get to Acts 15, there were some Christian Jews that claimed a Gentile could not come to faith in Christ unless he was circumcised. He had to be circumcised first, and then he could become a Christian, which, of course, by God's grace and uh, by the wisdom that God gave, they said that is incorrect, absolutely incorrect. The Jew... The Jewish people were trusting in their circumcision as their rock of faith, when Jesus Christ is the only rock of faith. So the answer is, the Jew does have an advantage. They have the Old Testament scriptures. And um, we can equate the idea, you know, um, that uh, we, as Westerners, and America especially, have the scriptures. And the scriptures have been a tremendous blessing to our country. Like I said, uh, we talked about um, problems that existed in the past, uh, and they're real, and it's true. 
so we don't put on rose-colored glasses and pretend like nothing bad's ever happened. But there has been, throughout the history of this nation, an underlying thread of the scriptures, and an understanding of the scriptures. And that's been much to our benefit. It's been much to our good. And there are many that are trying to erase that totally along with erasing other things. You know, England and European nations in the West have essentially removed the scriptures from society. Kind of ironic. The Church of England runs England. But it's not the kind of church that you'd really want to be a part of, to be honest with you. That's just the truth. You know, so there's a form of godliness, but the power thereof has been denied. No, uh, that we've been blessed, just like the Jewish people have had the scriptures. We've been blessed to some extent to have the scriptures too. You know, but let me ask you: How many people today? How many Americans would say that the Bible is the Word of God? And I believe what the Bible says. And how many Christians, people that say they're Christians, or maybe they are really Christians, but they're not well taught. How many of them would say, well, yeah, the Bible is good. And we'd follow the Bible. But you've got to admit, there's a lot of bad things in there that really don't exist anymore. Some of it, you know, by prejudice. Some of it by ignorance. Some of it just because, you know, 2,000 years ago, man, and some of the Old Testament, that's older than that. It's outdated. It's outfashioned. You can't have women pastors? What's that all about, you know? Or, or homosexuality is a sin? You know, oh, come on. Come on. You love who you love. You can't help it. And these are the arguments that you'll sometimes hear in Christian circles. And, and as far as churches go, the key word that you might want to look for in that is affirming. When you see a banner that says we are an affirming church, that means, um, oh, you know, we just don't believe the Bible. Not <laughs> everything to tell you the truth, you know. We affirm more of modern culture. That's just the truth of the matter. Well, I'll tell you, homosexuality in all of its forms is destructive to the individual. The individual, you know, needs to be rescued from that lifestyle. And it's destructive to society, too. So we could go on and on about that. We have done that. Um, stealing's another one. Stealing's an interesting one. Um, because Proverbs 6.30 tells us that people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. You know that? That's what the Bible says. It makes sense. If you're starving, it makes sense that you may be tempted to steal. In fact, uh, the, psalm, uh, the Proverbs in another place says, uh, give me neither poverty or riches, you know, riches that I might forget God, poverty that I might be tempted to steal. You know, poverty is a terrible thing to live in. It really is. But I didn't read all the Proverbs. The proverb says, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet, the verse, next verse says, when he's found, he must restore sevenfold what he stole. And in a situation like that, it isn't necessarily that you need to send somebody to prison. Restitution, I believe, 
is a more biblical and a better way. And there's certain things that uh, the Old Testament law does speak about uh, being, uh, needing to be restored, sometimes threefold, sometimes fourfold, in this case, sevenfold, you know. So the next objection comes, what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God of no effect? Okay, and that's, that uh, outline is right just directly from verse three. And what the question actually is, is we know in our history there have been many that did not believe God, that did not follow God. And uh, we know in other places, where in Matthew 23, where the Lord Jesus Christ says that uh, some of the people he was listening to said that uh, we, you know, we're not like our fathers. Our fathers killed the prophets and persecuted others. So we're not like that. Of course, the people that said that were the ones that, that along with the Romans, crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. But that's the way they were thinking. So, yeah, it's been true. This, right, this, this self-righteous Jew says, you know, it's true that there have been many of our people that haven't been faithful and have not believed. Does that mean that the word of God or the, God's righteousness is of no effect? And without hesitation, Paul says, certainly not. Certainly not. Absolutely not. And, of course, that's kind of difficult to translate the way that it comes out in the Greek. So in your various translations that you're looking at, it's going to be said in, in different ways. I, I think the old King James, if I remember correctly, I didn't look it up. I think it says God forbid. Um, and, and the Greek doesn't say God forbid, but that's the way it was being put in those days. It's a really, really strong exhortation is what it is. Really strong. Absolutely not. You know, okay. So, you know, Paul paraphrases what God said to Job in verse 4. Um, As it is written, or certainly not, indeed let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and that you may overcome when you're judged. You know, so he's paraphrasing something. It's interesting because we have a situation where we're dealing with Hebrew, we're dealing with Septuagint Greek, we're dealing with Paul's paraphrasing at times of the Word of God, and it all comes together to be what? The perfect Word of God in the way that we have it, which only God can do. It's an amazing thing. So it says here that you may be justified in your words and you may, ov- and may overcome when you're judged. And we're talking about Job here. Job was a righteous and godly man, yet in the darkest days of his life, he was so broken down. You know, at the very beginning he says, um, you know, we'll accept only good from the hand of God and not evil. But on it goes. His friends come. His friends break him down. His friends are wrong. They say, Job, obviously, they're trying to be subtle at first, you know, we know that God judges righteously, and, and uh, when, when you do good, good things happen to you. When you do bad, bad things happen to you. And uh, Job's not taking it too well. So they start saying, Job, just look at yourself, man. You're a mess. Look at, look at what God's doing to you. You've got boils all over you. You've, you've lost your family. On and on it goes. Uh, There's some secret sins hiding here that God is punishing you for. And Job says, I 
don't know of any secret sins, you know, but I do know I'm suffering. And I do know the hand of God has turned against me, and I don't know why. I'm, I'm telling you the story, and it's like that. <laughs> okay. Job's friends were the ones misreading providence. Job, you must be a great sinner. Look at the way you're suffering. Only sinners suffer. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. That's why I said in my prayer uh, to pray for those of our own that are suffering that way. Because God does bring trials upon us, but he also gives us the strength to bear it by his grace. So will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God of no effect? Chrysostom, uh, writing back in ancient days, uh, comments on this. Paul is saying something, it's on your outline. Paul is saying something like this. Even if every one of the Jews was an unbeliever, God would only be more justified. What does the word justify mean, Chrysostom says? It means that if there were a trial and an examination of the things which God had done for the Jews and also of what they had done to him, the victory would be with God and all the right would be on his side. So it's kind of an interesting thing to see, a kind of a forensic view uh, of that coming that early in church history. So some, here's the key. What if some did not believe? Okay, not all. God had a believing remnant in the worst of times. And we have every reason to believe that God still has a believing remnant of the Jews in this new covenant age as well. And we're going to see that when we get into Romans 9, 10, and 11 and explore that in depth. It's talking about the remnant that belongs. The remnant from the world that is all of us and then a remnant of the Jewish people that do trust Christ as Messiah. And what's the positive proof that God has not forsaken the Jews? The positive proof that unbelief does not nullify God's promises is that God was faithful and God sent his son to them to save Israel, to save as many in Israel as would come to him. God did not abandon Israel. And turning to the Jew, Gentiles was not abandoning Israel. The establishment of the church does not cut off from the Jew salvation. In fact, the physical Jew can become a true Jew through Jesus Christ the Lord. And this is the basis of Paul's argument when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's exactly what he's talking about. The Jews did not lose anything by Christ's coming. The Jews did not lose anything by the church being established. The Jews actually had the way of salvation and the yoke of the law that was so burdensome taken from them. And their idea of self-salvation, which the Old Testament doesn't teach, that idea of self-salvation removed and the promised Messiah that had been promised to them all of the time throughout all of the scriptures, starting in Genesis 3.15, the promised Messiah actually had come. And just because some didn't believe it, didn't mean it wasn't, wasn't true. It was true, whether anybody believed it or not. 
but it's especially true for those who had their eyes opened. And in that first century, believe me, there were many Jews that turned to Christ. Many Jews, the early church was made up primarily of Jews in the very earliest days. And uh, many of the priests that had worked in the temple and had um, read the scriptures turned to Messiah. Well, the third objection comes, and it's really not one that uh, a self-righteous moralist Jew would say. But uh, this is something that Paul is being accused of by his Jewish opponents. Paul, as he would preach from town to town, uh, there would be Jewish opponents that would follow him and uh, slander him and say, this is what he says. He's trying to get rid of the law. He's trying to get rid of, of all of the good so the question, so, or so it's framed in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. In other words, hey, you know, I mean, God's worked our unrighteousness into his favor. So why would he judge us for that? And God said, no. And Paul said, no, no, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world if that be the case? So it's an objection. And the next objection comes right on the heels of it. Three and four go together. Verse seven, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also judged a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? That's what this apostate Paul is saying. He says, hey, there's grace available for you. You want grace? Sinner, you can have grace. You can come to Christ and just believe and just have faith and look to him. And so the thought is, well, if I get more grace when I sin, and I should sin a bunch. I want more grace. That's exactly what I want. I want more of God's favor. I want more of his loving kindness. And so I'm going to sin to get it. Ridiculous. Ridiculous, obviously. You know that it's ridiculous. Let me give you an illustration of how ridiculous it is, just in modern terms. Okay. We, we understand that um, firemen are heroic. We love firemen, unless you're a cop. But we love, that's a joke, okay. We all, I mean, police band together with firemen too in times of trouble, don't they? Of course they do. We see how heroic firemen are when there's a blazing battle of an apartment building. And they'll go in there and they'll look for people and they'll do everything they can, risking their own life to, to save somebody. They're heroes. It's a wonderful thing. We honor them. It's a good thing that they do. It's a selfless thing they do. It's the right thing that they do. And we're glad for them. And all of that is true. All of that is true. So, why don't we all become arsonists and start fires? And then we can see just how heroic they really are. You know, we can just marvel at the goodness that they're doing and, and the people that they're saving. And, okay. It's ludicrous, isn't it? Absolutely ludicrous, of course. Well, that's how ludicrous this is to say, 
Let's sin more so we can get more grace. Paul never said that. He slanderously was said to say that. But you know why some people would get that idea? They still do today. You tell somebody that a murderer could come to Christ and be forgiven. And he could maybe languish in jail, languish in prison, but he'd be forgiven and he'd be in heaven. And the person that he killed went to hell. To the carnal mind, that's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. How could that possibly be? Well, it can be because God can save murderers. And God can save adulterers. And God can save uh, any sinner. God can save them. But that is no reason to be a sinner, my friend. That is no reason at all to be a sinner. You know. So there you go. To, to do these things to get more grace is ridiculous. Paul's message was God saves sinners. And the next few verses, Paul will prove from the Old Testament that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, are in need of grace. You don't need to sin more. You don't need to become more vile. Every man without Christ is already totally vile. It's called total depravity. Total depravity. A doctrine taught in the scriptures. So this sin more doctrine that Paul is accused of preaching is nothing more than slander. Well, we'll see that when we get to chapter 6 through 8. So remember, we're looking at the bad news before Paul brings us the good news. And I am going to deal with this. I think I can do it in 10 minutes. I really do. Um, because I'm not going to go into great detail about this. Verse 9 is uh, the key verse. And then scriptural citations are given after that. And we could take a whole sermon talking about where these scriptural citations come from. And we could show where they are in the Old Testament. But if you're really interested in that, you have the tools available to you that you can look that up yourself. You can go on the internet and find where it talks about these things. Some things aren't as clear as others. And many of them are given multiple times in multiple ways. But some are actually citations. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. And he's speaking as a Jew here. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks alike that they're all under sin. And that word um, under is a, a really key word here. Look at Romans, just flip over for a moment to Romans 7.14. See the, the Greek word there again. And, uh, and it's translated in my translation as under. Um, Romans 7.14. For we know the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. Okay. So there's Paul. We'll get to Romans 7 and talk about, um, you know, Paul as an unconverted man, and then Paul as a converted man dealing with the issues of sin. You know, the point is under sin. Not able to keep from sinning. Is the point. And um, the truth is, no man can master sin on his own. And no man in himself has the power to conquer the power of sin. And it's interesting, um, many 
many lost people have found this to be true. Okay? Many lost people that don't even come to Christ have found this to be true. Many addicts have been helped when they become willing to admit that they're in need of a higher power. They're in need of something outside of themselves to break their addiction if they're ever going to break that horrible chain of addiction. And I can tell you that one can conquer alcohol and one can conquer drug use by following certain steps. Doesn't work for everybody, but it works for many. And uh, there's no formula, though, to conquer all sin and become righteous. No formula exists for that. Sin's at the very fiber of the lost man's being, and even his morality is immorality. And often what we find happens in these situations um, where addicts um, realize they're in need of a higher power, so that's the very first thing they confess, is uh, they, they trade one vice for another, although often the vice they get rid of is a far more destructive to their bodies and well-being than another. But often it's really just a, a transfer of one thing to another. Well, the ugly list of universal guilt, and this is a commentary on verse number nine. Paul uses their Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. Of course, the Old Testament was written to the Jews, but it really belonged to Paul in its full understanding because they read it and, and they could read it, but they didn't fully understand it or understand what it meant. They needed to be taught. The main subject of the Old Testament was Christ. So when you read the Old Testament without looking for Christ or trying to find Christ, well, you're kind of missing the point of what it's about. It belongs to them, it belongs to Paul, and then it belongs to us, too. So every accusation is taken directly from the Old Testament scriptures, Paul's quoting verses, but also bringing out passages and bringing out truth. The ESV Study Bible, I'll put a plug in for that, because it's a really, really a great Bible, I think. It's one of the finest study Bibles, if you like study Bibles, that's out there. It has a very nice chart on uh, the main verses that Paul is referencing, but it's not exhaustive, and it wasn't meant to be exhaustive. It's a chart. Just try to help you a little bit there. So we could spend an entire sermon cross-referencing all of these things in the Old Testament. Um, a book I have um, that talks about the the New Testament use of the Old Testament devotes about three pages, and these are big pages uh, to, to this. But instead of doing that, I'm going to do as though we read in the church and just deal with it for what it says. And then with an Old Testament background, you'll recognize many of these things. And as you read devotionally through the Old Testament, uh, these things are going to stand out at you if you take the time to really, really look at these things, because these are taken from the Old Testament. And they even come through in translation, even into the English uh, so many times. So, a modified list of Paul's groupings. The outline's going to help you here. Jew and Gentile alike condemned sinners. First of all, Paul's thesis, verse 9, proven by numerous Old Testament scriptures. And then all are under sin. And then the ugly list of universal guilt. First of all, all men without Christ are in a sinful condition. Man does not want to know God and his truth. 
Man wants to be able to do his own thing. And verse 12 ends this first group of charges, highlighting man's universal inhumanity to man. Let's read verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. So there's the first indictment we see. All men without Christ are in a sinful condition. The second thing we see, all men are vile in their speech. Doesn't James tell us that too? James talking about the tongue no man can tame. Okay. All men are vile in their speech. And um, the human lie denies God in unbelief. And it is exhib exhibited by his speech. Isn't it strange? Kind of a cultural thing. I couldn't talk about other cultures. I can only talk about ours. That's the one that I know the best. But isn't it strange? When, when people get really angry and swear, there's a lot of vile words they use, but um, cursing God is certainly one of them. And, and I know some of you have had problems with that. You know, it's, it's a habit. It's a habit that's formed. It's generally not even a conscious habit of railing against God. It's something that you get so used to that even after you come to Christ, you've really got to watch your tongue, you know, in uh, blaspheming God and, and speaking against God that way. Well, the human lie that denies God is unbelief, and it's exhibited in the speech. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And so we see the sinful condition, the vile speech, and then there's a concluding chiasm here. Chiasm is something we've talked about, oh, not a lot, but we talk about it. It's very, very common in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes it shows up in the New Testament too. It's a very Jewish idea, actually, in so many ways. And it has to do with, um, uh, the, I got it on your outline there, is A, B, B, A. It's, um, you know, and it just works that way. The A's go together, the B's go together. It's like, kind of like a sandwich there. And this is what we see, verse 15. Their blood are swift to shed, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Why? Because their feet are swift to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And then the middle section, destruction and misery are in their ways, the way of peace they have not known. No fear of God, which is why lost men say the things they say. It's why lost men do the things they do. And such were some of you. Yeah, absolutely. Three fingers pointing back. Okay. Such were some of you. And the undeniable condition is found in verses 19 and 20. I'll read it, and then we'll look at Spurgeon's comment on it. Now we know that whatever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. And then here's the conclusion. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
And that's the purpose of the law. And that's what the law does. And uh, the law brings the knowledge of sin to ourselves and the fact that we're sinners and that we need a remedy and that we need to be rescued. And we're rescued by grace. We're rescued by Jesus Christ. We're rescued by his righteous life that he lived for 33 years upon this earth, never sinning once, being confronted by sinners hour by hour by hour by hour, confronted by sinners amongst his own disciples, confronted constantly and yet never sinning himself, always doing God's will, always doing God's purpose, giving his life, and then paying for our sins on the cross. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ the Lord paid for your sins on the cross. And you can give him all the praise, you can give him all the glory. Okay, that's for Christians. The undeniable conclusion, Spurgeon says it well, all the law can do is show us our sin. The law is a mirror, and looking in it, you can see your spots. But you cannot wash in a looking glass. If you want to be cleansed from your stains, you must go somewhere else. The object of the law of God is not to cleanse us, but to show us how much cleansing we need to reveal our disease and not to find a remedy for it. The law will give you no remedy. But the Bible will give you a remedy. It's the gospel. It's come to Jesus. He will save you. He will cleanse you. He will make you whole. Just applications. Brief. In our gospel presentations, don't omit the law. A person needs to know the bad news before they can know the good news. And if you don't give the good, don't give the bad news... People come to Christ for the wrong reasons. They really do. Oh, he's going to make me happy? I want to be happy. I'll come to Christ. He's going to make me rich? Well, I wonder how that one works out. <laughs> I don't think that works out a whole lot. But it, people believe it. People believe it. And, and they trust in it. And, and they see their pastors getting rich. Obviously, we don't believe in <laughs> health and wealth prosperity. They see their pastors getting rich. They say, well, I can get rich too. You know, uh, That must last for a while, but I can't imagine that being a, a good model that's going to continue on for any length of time. Then the second one. Oh, by the way, we also need to understand that it's not our ideas of what's right and wrong that's going to matter. It's what God says. It's God that has given the law. Okay. And then a, another thing. As Christians, we must be humble. It is very, very easy for us, especially if we've been Christians for any length of time, to begin to look down on others and think they are less than and forget that that's us. That's where we were and that's where we would still be if it wasn't for the grace of God and his work in our hearts. We must be humble because he applied Christ's death and righteousness to us and changed our hearts forevermore we didn't do it. He did it for us. And he's still doing it for others too. Never forget. And third of all, the knowledge of the law should bring gratitude to our hearts because we are not under the condemnation 
That's where under comes in again. It should be gratitude because we're not under the condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the scriptures say. Uh, we'll get there and we'll see that. But you know it already, I'm sure. But to the lost, to the unbelieving, to those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and have not bowed the knee to him, then I just beg you, admit you have no righteousness of your own. Take these first three chapters very, very seriously and realize that even your righteousness is filthy rags and your supposed righteousness is actually unrighteousness but you can flee to Christ for salvation. You can do like the publican. God be merciful to me, the sinner. You can bow your heart before him and bow the knee to him and reach out and pray to him. You can flee to Christ for salvation. And you know what? He'll save you. He absolutely will save you. That's his promise. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you even for the bad news, because we needed to hear it. Once Adam fell, the world was plunged into bad news. But we thank you that really within the very few hours of the plunging into great sin and darkness, a crimson cord was extended that talked about a savior that would come. Crimson cord in Genesis 3.15, that the serpent did not win the day. The serpent's head would be crushed and the redeemer would be glorified and he would have a people. Father, we thank you that even at the darkest hour when sin had overcome, you overcame sin. And Father, even in the midst of the darkest of societies, we see that you have your people. Even in the midst of heathen societies that still exist with false religion, you have your people, a remnant. Even in the midst of intellectual societies, you have a remnant. And Father, Christians may never be the majority of all that live on the earth. And we haven't seen a time yet where that has been the case. But we thank you there's always been a remnant. Those that are your people that call out to you and believe in you. Father, we would pray that we'd be found amongst that remnant. And if there's anyone here today that is not, I pray they would bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him and receive the forgiveness that can only come from him. May Jesus Christ be praised in his name. Amen.